Rotations is all about allowing interesting people the opportunity to share their opinions and ideas. Some listeners and viewers may find the ideas and content expressed disturbing or objectionable. You remember, Lori, about about four or five inches from the mic, you too, Nick. Um, I might be too far here. Yeah, you're better. Whichever you're comfortable with. Okay. You just sound good. You have that nice voice. It's right. good. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. You, you could talk like the many years of practice, like one of those uh, Saturday Night Live. This like calming, like uh, like uh, help, help, help. Audios where you speak very quietly yes, and mm-hmm. get into the moment and think about the nicest place you can imagine. Yeah, <laughs> so, your happy place. Your happy place. Yeah. So you mentioned you have to sleep. no sense. I think we do sometimes. So. It's, it's Todd Fredericks, Assistant Professor of Family Medicine at the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. That's O-U-H-com. And uh, this is another episode of Rotations. And we've been waiting for this for a while because we were going to do this a couple months ago. Of course, it's pre-recorded, so you wouldn't know when we were going to do it. But we finally have the opportunity to talk about uh, something really cool. So, Nisarg? Yeah, that's that's a perfect introduction. Uh, so, my name is Nisarg. I'm, I'm second-year medical student here at OUHCOM, and today's episode, we're going to look at the intersection between art and medicine and how we can use art to heal and, and evoke these powerful emotions. Um, so we're joined by Lori Esposito here, who's an artist and educator here at OU. Um, she's been on an episode before uh, with Dr. Michael Gibson, where we talked about his work as an interventional cardiologist uh, and as a painter. So we're excited to bring that topic back. So thanks for coming, Lori. Thanks for having me. That was a great conversation. I learned a lot from it, and I'm still, I'm still thinking about it now, and so I'm really glad to be back. Yeah, it was really interesting. It was. <laughs> uh, we're also joined by one of my classmates, uh, Nick, whose last name I cannot pronounce. I'm sorry. <laughs> Van Ben Schoten. Van Ben Schoten, who is an incredible artist. I've seen some of his drawings, and that basically has gotten me through anatomy so far. So <laughs> thanks for coming, Nick. Uh, it'd be cool to get your perspective on this as someone who can actually... Uh, create art and do medicine at the same time. Well, thank you for having me. Of course. So, Lori, tell us a little bit about your background. Well, I'm an educator now. I'm uh, I'm the chair of foundations at the School of Art Plus Design, and I've had a long journey getting here. Uh, started off um, uh, as a commercial artist, actually, um, and creating illustrations and uh, some of the work that I've done has been medically inclined. Um, I did illustrations for publishing companies who created um, supplementary material for teachers who work with uh, kids who have various disabilities in the classroom and ways to offer them support. And that was sort of my first rub up against, you know, this kind of interdisciplinarity as an artist and of service to a discipline that I didn't have a lot of uh, knowledge about, um, and I think that that was that influenced me greatly because from that point forward, I became interested in um, exploring how to not only represent others in an inclusive way, in a diverse way, but also to express myself as an individual and be true to my experiences in the world, which isn't as easy as it would seem. Sure. So you said before that you know you try to use your artwork to heal and to offer relief and empowerment from a profound loss or, or change. How can artwork achieve uh, such an effect? Yeah, I mean this is this is about bereavement culture, and I don't want to be alone. I mean we all walk the path of grief alone. We have to face our own mortalities. We will all die alone inevitably, but I was seeking a community, and when I started making this walking work. 
uh, I was walking away from my studio towards a greater, grander whole that I could feel my impact in the world, you know, I could feel my feet walking on the earth. I could see the landscape going by, truckers honking at me, people stopping me or walking along with me. And and I just responded to that, and the work was really just this this process of becoming. It then became, I became aware of my presence and my visibility as a person who is grieving in the landscape. And then I was able to figure out how to hand that process over. I wrote some instructions. That was one of the things I did. I met up with different support groups at Compassionate Friends chapter in Columbus's mothers uh, grieving from the loss of their children and, and tried to facilitate walks with different communities to see um, how the work could be changed um, for the better for communities and for culture, not to say that it would change specifically for me if I continued to do it by myself, but that was interesting to me, and that was part of the work. So, Laura, you, you, you have shared this with us before, but, but not yet. Why were you mm-hmm. grieving? Um, I lost my sister in 2012, um, and, you know, so it really felt kind of like a beginning of all things and mm-hmm. an origin. It was sort of like my origin story was beginning all over again. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was a great, um, painful time for me, but also very creative time. As um, many of us know that the arts is, in some ways, a, a revelation of the experience of pain and this, when you talk about spectrum, like all the different ways that we experience pain as a study to itself, I mean, it's part of how we understand each other, you know, Wittgenstein, and how we understand. It's such a hard thing to know what another person's pain is like or relate to it. So this was my uh, homage, I guess, to that. How did your art change, you know, as you were going through this grieving process? Um well, I wasn't in a studio anymore. I returned to a studio later on, which is where these um, prints came from. I took photographs of the places that I walked because I wanted to remember them. And when I walked with friends, I invited them to take pictures of me. So um, We should tell the people listening that if you're listening <laughs> on your commute to work at this, okay, you don't have the benefit of seeing this. So that's why you should go to YouTube and check out Rotations Podcast because we'll have actually the video. But we'll see if we can post the links to the photos in the show notes for the audio too. Um, yeah, okay, so speak to this, Lauren. Yeah, we're, yeah, what are we looking at here? So I'm, I'm driving cross-country. I'm in New Mexico. There's a salt bed um, on the side of the highway. Um, I pull off the side of the road, trespass, <laughs> <laughs> and I and I uh, do a meditation walk there. Um, and I had this uh, photograph and many photographs of these places that were not your typical romantic landscapes. With m- many of the places that I've walked have been very beautiful, you know, Wyoming, Colorado. Um, but I also walked in some pretty dingy. Um, places and this was just the the side of a highway there's trucks driving by I have high visibility Um, there's almost no other people around so I really stand out and uh, I took I took an evaporation walk there and um, left no trace but then I had this photograph so I printed it and I painted 
the path that I walked there, just in case I ever wanted to remember, it was sort of a mapping project. If I ever wanted to retrace that walk or do that walk again, it's, it's almost sort of like a score, like a choreographic score. Now do the dance again, but anybody can step in and do it. Um, I've left these little icons of rocks or stones in place of my footsteps. So wow. you can see where I've been, but my I'm not part of the representation of that walk anymore. I'm not a, a, a young woman in the image now, you know, that you're voyeuring. There's a space where the figure's absent that you're being asked to, to enter. For all the med students and, and potentially physicians, residents, all the medical people listening, what can we benefit or how can we benefit from an artistic venture? You know, what, why should people pursue art that aren't necessarily trained in it? <laughs> um, uh, I mean, it's hard for me to sort of speak for what's valuable to a medical student. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, I think the arts are of value to everyone if we can um, think about them in terms of culture and humanities and not necessarily as something that someone is born into being good at, you know. Um, I, I would welcome and encourage medical, anyone who's in the medical uh, school or in a medical education or is in the field to, um, hop over to an art studio or to an art school or, or classroom sometime and just sit in and talk to artists. Um, from the first podcast that I did here with um, Dr. Dr. Gibson. Mike Gibson, yep. Yeah. Um, afterwards, um, are we ha was it Stephen that was here? Mm -hmm. Yep. He's a fine, fine photographer, <laughs> journalist, photojournalist. Yes. And we had coffee after uh, the podcast and we talked about this, um, the challenge of expressing or talking about trauma from an autobiographical point of view. Like, what do you say? You're trying to share with a broader audience and you're trying to um, uh, connect with, you know, other people who have maybe had similar experiences or are interested in hearing about your experience. How much do you say my friend got shot, you know? Um, my my sister died this way. Like, how much is too much? And he told me that he had actually had training in how far to go with that, which blew my mind. And I've been presenting my work at institutions and venues and schools all over the country and all over the world. And it, it made me think, like, oh, my, you know, I've tried different things, but there were times that I felt like maybe I had given unnecessarily, you know, unnecessary amounts of information about my specific struggles that might have become an obstacle between my work and my audience. And other times, depending on who that audience or context was, I didn't give enough information. How do you know? And I would appreciate having that conversation with a larger group, with medical informed community, with counselors, with artists, with scholars, you know, curators, everyone, like, Let's talk about that. Let's have a panel discussion about that. Um, so that was that was very interesting. I'm sure medical students would benefit greatly from that too. Um, I think if we're successful in our efforts with media and medicine, I think that will become more more frequent. Mm -hmm. um, and the, I get the I would just say like this: the answer is, you talk as much as you need to, mm -hmm. right? Some people it's more, some people it's less. But one of the biggest problems I see in the corporatization of medicine is we listen less and people have less time to talk. So if, if, the, if the pendulum swings a little far at times where people talk more and it's a little uncomfortable, it's probably good to recondition us as physicians to listening. 
because some people, that's their therapy. They don't need anything. They don't need medication. They don't need to be drugged up. They just need to vent about what's caused them grief or what's caused them joy, whatever it is, to help get through the process that they're dealing with. And so I think that's critical. Uh, one of my hopes is, is that um, if you're a student uh, that wants to go to medical school and you like doing artistic things. We do a lot of interdisciplinary work, and it's usually with more conventional things, like the, the the physicians working with the virologists or the immunologists, and all that is very valuable. And I know those people and their professional colleagues, and they're good people. But I, I would love to expand that envelope to a student that has desire to do artistic expression or storytelling to where you come to OU specifically with a desire to work with, say, Lori Esposito in art to do medical storytelling and be able to take that to a wider audience, developing your skills as a storyteller, as a medical person, and being able to do that through various mediums to reach a broader audience. I think that's there's a lot to be uh, a lot to be gained from that, and I think it, it is humanities. That's yeah. fundamentally what I think medicine is losing is it's losing its entrenchment in the humanities. Okay, Nassar, you can edit all that out if you want to, but I just, I just <laughs> no, wanted no, to know. Not at all. Just, not just at all. Don't edit any of that. No, no, it's all staying <laughs> in. <laughs> but. Um, so going back earlier, we were talking about using this artwork to heal. Mm-hmm. So how do, you, how do you create a visual representation of an emotion? I guess that's the hardest part I, I don't understand about art. I'm mm-hmm. so far, like I'm not artistic at all. I'm extremely right-brained, or I think right-brained. And mm-hmm. how do you create that visual representation of an emotion? You know, what, what's that process look like? Whoever wants to take over first. All right, I'll, I'll start. First off, I will say... It is very hard. I don't even know if I've been able to do it. A lot of the stuff I draw is very realistic. It's based off of real life. And it's kind of hard to access those abstract emotions. What I will say is one of the great things, and we talked about this earlier, is that because you are, even though you're trying to get across one type of emotion in your artwork, that might not be the emotion that come, is you know interpreted by the audience member. Um, it just kind of depends on the audience's perspective as they're looking at your artwork and as well what your perspective is going into it. Trying to catch emotion with artwork. Lori, I don't know if you have any experience with it. I, It's something that I try to do, but I don't think I've been able to do it to any near extent that others have been able to before. Well, uh, yeah, I don't know. I I uh <clears throat> I find that a very challenging question because um it's something that um I see as sort of a realm of exploration much more than sort of a destination that I've arrived at. Um and it's not necessarily going to be right the goal of an artwork. It, like the end point. Um but I, but I think it is a question that um, is really fundamental to uh, practitioners early on in development and, and developing ability. It's a huge motivator. You know, like I'm, I'm communicating something of myself. I'm making it external so that others can connect with it. You know, like I'm, I'm, I'm exercising self-expression and it feels really good. You know, it's a great motivator and it's, um, it's, it's something that we get away from sometimes when work gets too technical or too conceptual, you know, um, or becomes too, you know, 
universally or globally based, you know, it's like so easy to get away from the local. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if I want to even yeah. answer that. Well, I, think it's, <laughs> I think it's also worth noting, Lori, that art doesn't have to be emotive. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it can it can be you know the impressionists are an example. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's some beautiful impressionistic work you know of of, of still lifes, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have something like you know the scream. Mm-hmm. What is or, or it, Mona Lisa, right? People that the art that people are familiar with. There's obviously an emotion going on there. Mm-hmm. What is that? What's the background? So um, I think that we need to look at that. That maybe there's a more deliberative process there going there. I would just mm-hmm. uh, for the sake since Brian's not here, but Brian and I have this ongoing discussion. I look at film as artistic as a, as an artistic medium. Brian does not. And I'll let Brian speak to that sometime when he comes on. He'll never come on because he hates being in front of a camera. But <laughs> Brian is our editor, by the way. Brian is our editor, and Brian is very He's good at editor. what he, he is really good. And Brian and I have had this discussion, and Brian will say, and Brian, when you're editing this, He's you can edit cut this out. out if you don't like it. <laughs> but Brian will say that film can be artful, but it's not art. I disagree. I, I think that art is something, um, kind of what we talked about the last segment, that if it evokes something in me, um, even if it's a sense of appreciation, um, I can appreciate it uh, as an art form. And to that end, Walter Murch, who wrote a book called In the Blink of an Eye, which is a classic textbook in film editing, everybody who's in film knows that book, will tell you that the first and foremost thing in any film creation is emotion. You have to define what you're trying to achieve with, them, with that storytelling. Um, even pure documentary typically revolves around some kind of desire to evoke emotion. And again, going back to what I said, it doesn't have to. It's just that... If you're going to prioritize, it's the number one thing, and so it's probably then it's probably hard because it's the most important thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it's hard to do the most important things, right? I mean, so even if, if you're seeking, how do I present this? And there's probably formulaic things, Laura. You can talk about mm-hmm. the use of color, the use of light, but the deeper sense of the story within that picture. Um, maybe it's a combination of all of them. I don't know. I mean, you, this is more of an academic technical thing. What are the what are the tools? I mean, you can teach people some of this. I mean, it's just like using minor chords in music, right? That evokes a certain emotion, and that's a known thing, right? If I want to make you sad, I'm going to use minor chords, right? <laughs> what about an art? I mean, what is your experience with that? You know, I think you know, some of this is getting at is like, who's the art for? And um, sometimes... You know, if the if if the and I think in in some work we we find the, you know, the artist is really trying to um, help the viewer be in their space of viewing their experience of a work and without that work sort of imposing some kind of a narrative or emotion on their experience and you know it can get it it can run the gamut you know artwork just runs the gamut of you know being very pragmatic. You know, being very logical, illogical, emotional, conceptual. At this point, um, it's it's just so vast as to you know what constitutes good art or um, significant work. You know, and that's one of the freedoms of um, the field. You know, and you can find yourself sort of innovating. You know, in a material or a technique, maybe a traditional material technique. Um, or you can find yourself really pushing the boundaries of what even people even think of as being art. And if you can get over the sort of abstract expressionist kind of expectations, you know, of I want to be moved, I want to feel something, um, or art is a sort of direct expression of like the gut, you know, which it is in part it can be, um, there's just a whole world of possibilities, just infinite possibilities of 
um, of, of, of the field, you know, of our practice and, and what we make as human beings. It's just fantastic. And, and I find that that's, um, you know, issues of dissemination, issues of display, issues of um, materi- material, you know, like it, it, it really just blows apart um, so many of the kind of modern, you know, pre-modern traditions and Renaissance kind of, you know, <laughs> expectations that are put on like what makes what makes art good. And, and expression and emotion is always going to hang in there in spirituality, religiosity, all of that is just because, you know, those like these early patrons, you know, and um, commission commissioners and of 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 work, you know, that's so embedded in our practice even today. But we can choose to kind of fight against that. Um, or or start to um, become of service to other disciplines, even be transdisciplinary. I hope I'm not getting too broad here, but I'm no, you're not. I'm trying. I'm trying to question. sort of open it up, you know, yeah. to in just celebration of what you what you're saying about, you know, um, that sort of the limitations of expecting art to have an emotional um, uh, reward. So yeah. I, what I want to focus is because we're media, we're you know we're rotations, and we're this is always related back to medicine in some way. Mm-hmm. I want to uh, bring up what I consider to be art, which is um, what is now an iconic image that evokes um, uh, thoughts about autistic children, mm-hmm. which is a, a multicolored puzzle piece. Right? Mm-hmm. Someone came up with that, and it speaks to a lot of things mm-hmm. about children and adults who experience autism. And so um, the power of that image, now it's, uni- I think it's universal. I, I mean, I think most lay people, if they see that puzzle piece oh, with yeah. color, it's right? it's pretty well known. Someone put that together, and someone was thinking about a lot of different things, Lori, when they said, how do I take in a single, single graphic image and represent a- appropriately the autistic community? Mm-hmm. How do I do that? Mm-hmm. So, Lori, how do you do that? Because, because it, it is it is something that, that motivates me as a physician to think about that stuff, and that's why I think it's important that we teach doctors to speak because they know this stuff, they mm-hmm. live in it. Mm-hmm. Now, can they take it to a different level and express it in visual or audio form in a way that represents an, that, that hits an even bigger audience mm-hmm. and helps to focus attention on these issues? I mean, how do, how does that process work? Yeah, I mean that that really gets at how important it is you know, if you're going to be an artist to really know what your value is, know what, or, fi- or figure it out somehow, um, because our experiences inform us and making a work, you don't want to make something about something you don't know anything about, right? Um, and then, you know, there's this crisis that we have when we want to tell someone else's story, you know, um, why do I, why am I telling this person's story? Do, is it okay for me to tell this person's story? Can I do it adequately? Um, there's some danger in that. And, you know, the question could turn from, you know, why are you telling this story about an autistic child? You're not autistic. You know, how do you know? To, why are you telling this story? Well, I have a son who's autistic and, and I've learned these things about his capabilities and I really want to, you know... Um, make make more po- more possible for him so he can be his best, you know, operate at his best, and um, so that's you know that's a beautiful thing, and and we as practitioners we all have to figure out how to do that and do that well, and it comes to a point where you have to really be, um, 
it's self-aware, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know. I, well, I, and I appreciate that because um, even though I'm a very <laughs> linear person, I can direct very well. But one thing I learned very early on is that it's so much more interesting when I get really creative people involved in helping the process. Um, the person that does the graphic arts for rotations is an HTC journalism student, but she is really good at listening and understanding and conceptualizing and trying to get a feel for things. And so our logo work, work that was done in graphics for uh, the Veterans Project, for other projects we work on, um, you know, why is it appropriate for artists to tell someone else's story? Because just like it's appropriate for an interpreter to be able to translate, mm-hmm. we need those people. Mm-hmm. And they're in a privileged position to do that. Yeah. You know, so there's a sense of responsibility. And gifts. It. Yeah. 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 What does that creative process look like? You know, when you're when you decide, okay, this is the thing that I want to create. Mm-hmm. How do you go about actually creating it? What does that process look like? For me. <laughs> yeah, for you. I, I mean, I, I don't know how. That's all I can really speak yeah. to. <laughs> It looks like Lori walking around the New Mexico desert with a plate, <laughs> with a plate in her hand and a camera, and praying that it doesn't rain. Because can you imagine if the rain came after eleven oh, hours? No. Uh, that is ephemeral, right there. It will be a reverse How do you, evaporation. I, I want you to back to Sarge's question, but can you hold the plate up for a camera? It doesn't matter, and we'll show it. We'll take a picture and we'll make sure it's up there. Where's the camera, Lori? How much Everywhere. do you worry about transporting that thing around? If it, I mean, literally, if there's a rainstorm that comes, that's gone. Right, mm-hmm. you gotta be very protective of that because it is ephemeral. It it it, it it's fragile. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some of them are just dirt in a plate. I don't always use pigment. <laughs> dirt in a plate. <laughs> yeah, because it's not meant to be permanent. You know, the the value of the work does not lie in a kind of um, you know conservatory object. You know, mm-hmm. it's really in the action. It's in the performance. It's served its purpose. I mean, when I displayed these in the museum, I, I saw little. Sp- scratches from people's fingernails on them because they just they love texture don't they they're asking to be touched <laughs> and who can help themselves i've gotten in trouble in museums so many times but <laughs> <laughs> stepping past that little what's alarm. the most expensive painting you touched uh picasso's yellow you sunflowers as oh, a wow. child this is my mom's story she says i was running my fingers across the impasto paint i think she made it up but i really like that story <laughs> Well, it, it does take it. You know, it's interesting because you have a child, right? I have mm-hmm. children. Mm-hmm. You guys were children. We're all children at some point. I still am. <laughs> Kids love to touch things. We well, start out learning our environments through tactile experience, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So it's sort of a natural thing for us to want to experience that. And especially yes. if it looks like it has depth or it has texture, we want to feel it because it brings us closer to it. Yeah. And I meant to say that was Van Gogh. I mean, this yeah, is texture about that. that he's using. You're the art lecturer at yeah. OU. I call him Picasso. You're the art lecturer at the, the Columbus <laughs> School, right? <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> yes. Throw a name out of your enemy. It's my, <laughs> my evil twin. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I wanted to speak to the question about my process. Um, uh, so I, I think I enter into a, a realm where I'm just at lost, I think, very often. That's kind of where I start it. Everything's experimental at this point, and I keep reading that too. And I listen to artists talking about work and talking about working with young artists. At this point, everything that we do is experimental because so much has been done. So, you know, when I stepped out into like the highway bridge or started walking out into these vast expanses, um, it was an experiment, and it was a very focused experiment. It was something that I knew I could do in my grief. I knew I could walk, and I knew I could carry a dish. And uh, it felt good to me. It felt like one of the only things I could really do. And it felt like it was making me strong. And if I kept doing it, I would just get stronger and stronger. 
And I also felt like I was of service. Um, you know, I'm like, I'm, I'm an offering, I'm carrying a dinner plate and I'm, I'm carrying it forward. So it was just this kind of um, sacrificial element to it that I liked. And I just went with it. <laughs> and that's when I said the work was this process of becoming. It is an artwork that is not designed ahead, you know, of time and then, you know, um, implemented or executed. It was an artwork of becoming. And I knew that's what I wanted it to, to be. And just that, like, one small idea, I think, um, has given me different passageways into different inventing different practices that are very unique to my own experience, which is what makes it emotional. You know, it, it's a sort of after a while, you know, you can get caught in if, if you rely on um, traditions too much, you can get caught into caught up in um, kind of tropes, you know, and, and, and cliches. the and cliches. Yeah, and it's like we've got to usurp those somehow so that it's like, whoa, wake up you know, um, and come to things fresh again. And um, the book that I made um, off of this work that's, you know, it's sort of like a little graphic zine, um, was, it's called Be With the Ordinary. And it's just this idea of like going back to the body, you know, but you're there, you can't go back, you know, you're sort of, we're there new again. And a dinner plate is material. Our legs and arms are, you know, hair, <laughs> you know, the spices in uh, my cabinet, those are material again and made radical again is voice because, because of those tropes, you know, that have become so embedded in, you know, by art history and in our practice and in the field. So, yeah. so yeah. it sounds like it's almost built on empathy then. If you're kind of putting your own experience out there, experiencing that requires that level of empathy. Right. We're inviting others to step into that actual experience has, has been the most impactful of all of this for me. I mean, going to the Carnegie Museum of Art and History to do a show and then doing evaporation walk, facilitating evaporation walk, you know, um, like 10 participants showed up and we walked with these plates and we shared stories about our lives and we transformed, we make friends, you know, friendships were built out of that. It was definitely medicinal sharing those experiences. I had, um, you know, a, a woman tell me the story of um, her first marriage, falling in love, her first husband dying, remarrying, and then him dying, and then her becoming a widow, and then how she sort of started life over again, you know, um, as a, uh, once she was retired and how she was filling her life. Like, she told me her life story during one of these walks. And then she listened to me talk about my struggles. Mm. <laughs> I didn't hold back on her. You know, because that was so much what that space was and time was reserved for. And I couldn't have planned that. Yeah. That sounds so personal. You know, and I think a lot of thing with art, is, especially for me, because I don't know anything about art, it's so inaccessible. I don't. You know, it's hard to understand, like, why is this painting famous versus why is this one not? And you look at it, it's like, okay, it's cool, but I feel like there's something I'm not getting, you know. And Come so, on, evaporation. <laughs> I would love to. <laughs> well, you know, this is why this is important. We take, uh, present company notwithstanding, but you as a bad millennial. Okay, and me, <laughs> okay. Um, we take 
Myself. I mean, I'm an engineer in my head. That's what I think of. I think of numbers. And I mean, I have the cartoon guide to physics on my nightstand right now because I'm just going, uh, literally enjoying going back through elementary physics and looking at formulas and distance and, <laughs> and velocity equations and stuff like that. So here's the problem. We pick a whole bunch of people out of that realm to go to medical school. There's a whole bunch of patients that don't respond to that input. What they do respond to is a physical emotive experience that allows them to heal. And so why is it important that we talk about this stuff? It's important that as physicians, we're not so arrogant as to think that this sort of, even if we're good osteopaths, that we're not totally reductionistic, that we, we pride ourselves on being holistic. But at the end of the day, we can get very reductionistic and say, well, your gallbladder is a problem, so we'll fix the gallbladder. Maybe. Um, most medical encounters are much more nuanced than that. And so being able to say, hey, you know, Maybe you're a person that will respond well to an art experience. Maybe you're a person that will respond well to going out and doing this stuff. And here's a resource. Go talk to my crazy friend, Lori Esposito, across there, and she's going to take you out and walk around a field for a while. I'm, I'm tongue-in-cheek, but that may be exactly what that patient needs. If they're a person that responds that way and their, their catharsis to heal is to talk to someone about the fact that their husband left them or their spouse died or, or whatever, we've done our job. We've done our job by facilitating that process. Mm -hmm. And so we need to be aware of this. Um, I go back to what Nasargdo said, Lori. Um, if you could, because art is accessible, okay? Yeah. And Nick, you should talk about this too. Okay, and I'm a, I'm a sketcher and a doodler too. But how do we do that? I mean, what does it look like to bring a student in who says, I'm scared to pick up a pencil and a piece of blank paper. I don't know where to start. Lori, what would you say? Because I think that that actually should be part of medicine. Mm -hmm. Even if we teach a kid to doodle, right? Why don't you speak to that? Well, Nick, some schools do have it. So Who has you, it? Um, so I just read a book. It's it not was, that school in Columbus. It's not. Uh, Good. The, the book, and I'll, I'll put in a plug for it. It's an awesome book. It's called Every Patient Tells a Story. It's by... Oh, I've heard of that. Yeah, I haven't read it. Yeah, it's by the medical... Uh, Council, I guess, for the show House, and I love the show House. Ooh. And so she wrote a book. I like it's House. Beautiful. Yeah, and I think it was Yale, Yale Med School. Um, they take their kids and, and make them go to the art museum, and like they have to interpret certain paintings and report back, and it's like one of the exams that they have. And since then, all their test scores have gone up, and it's just been, it's been like a very, very positive thing that they added to the curriculum. So, Lori, you first, then Nick. How do we do that? How do we in, how do we get that started at OU where we where we get students to start? incorporating art as part of their education? Well, you know, there is some um, new developments in curriculum in uh, art schools all over the world right now, and they're in bio art programs. So I have a student did an independent study with me last semester, and she was interested in drawing the anatomy of animals and um, in, a, in a sort of scientific way and collaborating with science. And she's also taking biology classes and is legitimately learning biology. Well, what if she wanted to make work that wasn't of service necessarily to the field of biology? What if she wanted to borrow from, you know, like I think of like artists like Mark Dion, borrow from methodology, scientific methodologies to create work in collaboration with, you know, the humanities or centered in the, the field of, of, of art. Um, so there should, you know, there could be this kind of two-way conversation going on and there were, there's these studio laboratories that are built where um, those methodologies can then be combined and experimented with. 
What do you think, Nick? You're st- you are in the midst of this, right? So right. How, how do we what, comment about the value, if you perceive any, and if so, how do we get med students to start picking up a pencil or, and start doing some stuff creatively? So I think art is definitely very important in medicine. I mean, we call medicine an art form. Um, I believe Netter's Atlas, he hand drew those and he was a physician. Um, back in fall, I went to, or yeah, fall last year, I went to the Da Vinci exhibit at the Cincinnati Museum and you can see pa- um, paintings and drawings of human anatomy and you can see that artistry and science don't have to be these polar opposites they can be meshed together to those who are afraid to pick up a pencil and say you know well i can't draw i've never been able to draw i couldn't either as a kid i you know had very poor drawings but i kept practicing and for those interested in medicine medicine is called the practice of medicine as well as an art form we're continually practicing in medicine especially as students and art is similar to that. You have to keep practicing. And I've talked to a lot of second years, and it seems like many of us are doing something else that we enjoy in addition to going through medical school. Some people are... You have to. Yeah, some people are playing club sports. Some mm-hmm. people are, you know, taking outside classes. And this could be one of those releases for medical students who have an interest in drawing or painting or what have you, but they don't know how to pursue it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so I, I'm going to go out on the limb and get really crazy here and probably uh, tick off the, the people who oversee my future. But, uh, <laughs> but I mean, what, what would happen if you – would it be an appealing thing for an artistically-minded person? We have dual degree programs here, right? People are getting their MBAs. Mm-hmm. What if someone was offered to be able to do an MFA uh, – as part of their medical school education, do you think there's a niche of people that would be find that appealing? I personally and, would find that appealing. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think it would. I think poster presentations would take on a whole new flavor if you show. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. Yeah, I, those would be awesome, uh, right? Because who wants to? You look at these posters of these scientific. I mean, that's why I ask Elisa to look at the posters, right? Because mm-hmm. she's an artist. I say, please look at this and see if it's if it if it's appealing, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> and, and even at that level, right? You're going to say something, Lori. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a really, really good idea. I think that, like, the way it's it's designed, you know, a, a way that a curriculum that uh, students could um, be well-versed in multiple disciplines, or in this case we're talking about, like, the hard sciences and the humanities and studio art. Um, I think what would be important is to use, like, a phenomenological um, sort of rubric where the student makes the connections like maybe there's a set of classes you know that are designed to go together so that the students are enabled to make their own connections between the disciplines and I think it could be really good um what would prevent us from doing a Saturday morning seminar of intro to intro to art for, for medical students People would love that. And do four hours. People would definitely come. Collaborative taught, I'm in. Are you really? Where do we start? <laughs> because we, all we have to do is get the room yeah. and get the media. Um, it sounds like Fantastic. a very low-cost way, low-cost thing to do. Mm-hmm. And have you come and speak and say, if you're terrified of picking up a pencil, this is how you get started. 
That and, sounds great. And then and start that because I'd like to really cultivate that. And I think, like you said, Nick, I'm constantly looking for a way to keep students involved in something outside of medicine that allows them to recreate themselves. I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's a fantastic idea. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, we should. Uh, let me get through tenure, and then, uh, <laughs> and then, and then that'll be my next project to, to work right. with you on, Lori. And we'll get some other really smart, creative, wacky people to come in and contribute that you know, and and make it a really good experience for students to come in and then have them reflect on it and just say, "Hey, man, this is something that's changed me." I'd love to watch that longitudinally and see where it goes. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't have any cool. I don't have any other questions. So, Lori, <laughs> you, we, we, we talked a lot about this. Is there, are there concepts you wanted to talk about before we go? Yeah. What, Something, what, else? what yeah. else should we know as med students that probably won't talk to many other artists? Yeah. Um, I think right now there's also a great um, number of students who come into the arts who want to change their world and make it better and want to be activists and want to have an impact on the future of the world for the better, you know, and how do we enable that? How do we make that more possible? Mm-hmm. I think a lot of medical students feel the same way. I mm-hmm. think that there's a lot in common there. Mm-hmm. Nick, did you have any questions before we yeah. wrap things up? I, I don't want to leave anything out if you had anything. Um, I mean, I have questions, but there's there just there. way too many, <laughs> okay. to be quite honest. I love that answer. <laughs> um. I guess I just want to say, I do agree. I think, you know, Lori, you're completely right. There are many ways that one can contribute to society, and people really don't think about how they can contribute their artistry or their artist perspective. And I think finding that collaboration between medicine and art and having artists and physicians or artists and other, you know, healthcare employees coming together and finding that solid ground would be monumental in both you know, physician health and patient health. I think mm-hmm. finding some way to incorporate art into the lives of, you know, employees in the health field might help with burnout, mm-hmm. might help with, you know, mental health. And through that, they can also talk to their patients and, you know, provide them ways to find out, you know, yeah. to tap into that artistic core or any kind of other aspect that might help them emotionally or physically or anything like that mm. right, that's a great point yes. yeah yeah right, well this has been a really interesting uh like hour and a half or so that we, we've been talking and it's just it's stuff that we never really hear anywhere else so that's why it's nice to actually hear something besides neuroanatomy for once <laughs> yeah well it, yeah and it, it, I just think it's great, Lori, that you spent all this time with us. And, yeah, thank you so much. And, uh, yeah, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, I'll be up front. I was kind of wondering where this was going to go today because I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah, this, we have not been following this script at all. No, well, we did. We got a little bit we of it. We got like the first three questions. <laughs> but, uh, you, know, I mean, the, you know, in the midst of trying to rebuild a CV and make it pretty for the, you know, and that is a very reductionistic <laughs> process. Let me tell you, you, you're putting your CV together and you're putting all these very, you know, punctuation. And, have you tried an evaporation you, walk? No, what I want to do is I, I want to evaporate Bill Gates. And, and Microsoft Word because I don't understand the formatting system in that thing, but but uh, but, but but you know I found I find Lori this is just inspiring to me and I'm interested to see um, given if I'm given the privilege of remaining at OU I'm interested to see whether it's me or someone else that starts looking at some of this stuff I would love to walk into a room and see a bunch of med students sketching or or doing Let's whatever do and just figuring out the, you know where does that lead. Yeah. I think it'd just be awesome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. And it's funky. 
It is. Mm-hmm. That's it the is. whole point about you, right? Yeah. Is funky. Do something weird. <laughs> do, some, do something weird. Get your weird on, man. I mean, do I not? Yeah. You know? Or how about going out to Irvine and, and on the bricks and seeing a bunch of kids with plates in the middle that of summer? That would be interesting. Walking that would be around. Really cool. What are yeah. you doing? <laughs> Don't bother me, man. I'm in process. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. Thank He's you. Good. Thank you to all our listeners that uh, that joined us and, and viewers that watched. And uh yeah. yeah, this has been another episode of Rotations. It's been a good one. Right. Yeah, thanks, you guys. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye. Rotations is an experiment in student medical journalism. Rotations is a weekly podcast of all things medicine and science and is part of the media and medicine family of medical storytelling. The opinions and comments expressed on Rotations do not reflect the official or unofficial positions of Ohio University, the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communications. Guests on Rotations are interviewed in an unopposed fashion so their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. Rotations is hosted by Nasarg Bakshi, produced by Todd Fredericks, audio engineered by Kyle Snyder, and video edited by Brian Plough. Rotations is co-hosted by a league of champions of all things medical and a few people we pull off the street. Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome welcomes citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media. We reserve all rights to content. You may use Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons, but you cannot alter, edit, uh, or use the content in any manner without the express permission of the content creators, and you must cite Rotations as a source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments, and you can contact us by emailing us at rotationspodcast at gmail.com, tweeting us at rotationspcast, or by visiting mediamedicine.com slash rotations and putting the word rotations in the subject line. 